Welcome to Unexpected Points. I am your host, Kevin Cole. I am joined this week by 538 uh, football writer and analyst, Josh Hermsmeyer. Now, Josh is second time, first, second time guest on the show. So Not bad. Um, I'll put that up with all of your many accomplishments, probably, right? Goes, goes right near the top. And one of the reasons I like having you on here, there's a combination of a few things which don't make any sense together. Number one, I think you have really good opinions, good, strong takes, which generally end up being correct. Number two, I feel like we often disagree on things. And three, um, I still think I'm right. So I don't know how these three things all, all come together, but somehow that's that, the, the, all, the, all three come together, and that's why I wanted to have you on the show. That's an interesting take. I mean, like, I don't know how right I am or if I'm more right than you are on on the things we disagree on. But I think that we don't really disagree on the fundamentals. We just disagree on the application. I think that I think that's a fair way of putting it. That may be a fair way. Maybe maybe we, maybe we disagree on the presentation slightly, although yeah, that, not that not as <laughs> not as much as some other people. Um, all right, so this episode, everyone's you know everyone's got the playoff previews. It's it's playoff week. It's wild card week. I like to do things a little bit differently here, so I think we're going to focus a little bit more on some of the GM and head coaching stuff, uh, maybe touch on a couple of other topical things that are going on, the tanking discussion, which kind of fits into our wheelhouse here as uh, you know, spreadsheet geeks who uh, believe all tanking is good tanking, and if you could just throw out um, you know, 11 dummy bags out there uh, for, for the entire season, then you would win eventually after two or three years. So, so we'll, we'll talk into that. And, but then we'll get into the playoffs, but I really want to hit on one major theme. And at first I was going to say Ravens because mm. I don't want to talk to you because I know your familiarity with the team. Uh, you know, you hashtag our Ravens. And so that's true. But I think they fit into this larger question, which is, like, how much does it matter what we're seeing in the second half of the season, um, this momentum that's going in? You know, they've won five straight going into the season. But we also see this with the Bills and with a bunch of other teams. There's this issue of how much do we believe in what we've seen in, in the second half of the season or, or maybe even in the entire season when we talk about someone like Josh Allen. So th- that'll, be, that'll be at the back end of, of the show. Does that sound good to you? Sounds good to me. All right, man. So let's get into the uh, let's let's talk about Eagles first. I mean, it's probably a little bit old to talk old news to talk about this by the time this this comes out. But um, I mean, I, either way, I don't think it's a big story. But I do think there's some interesting discussions on whether or not this is the equivalent thing. So the Eagles pulling um, Jalen Hurts, bringing in uh, Nate Sudfeld, and whether that is an equivalent thing to teams like the Bills in the second half of the game or the Steelers for the entire game not playing their guys. I mean, I see some differences there, but there are a few people who I respect. I think Ben Ballman was one of them, Mike Renner, PFF Mike, uh, who said basically this is the same exact thing, so what are we complaining about? Well, how, how do you view these different situations? Yeah, someone in my mentions kind of made that point, and I hadn't actually considered it. And I, I, there are certainly differences, right? I mean, if you're going into the tournament – and you decide to do some things differently to maximize your chances to win this year, that's a slightly different thing than tanking for, you know, a luck box in the draft, even if it is slightly higher luck box, higher probability luck box than the one you had before. But in general, if you're talking about the point that so many of these people online have been making and so many pundits have been making about the integrity of the game and that we play to win and that, you know, there's this respect factor across the league that you're just kind of thumbing your nose at all that's nonsense in the face of the idea that 
those same people are supposedly trying their hardest, putting their bodies on the line. All those same arguments that they were making apply to those teams that start guys in situations where they pull their quarterback, their top wide out, when they aren't trying to win anymore as hard as they might uh, possibly be. So I, I think that I think that in that regard, the point it, it, it has fertile ground. But but it, you know, in terms of them being one to one analogous, I, I don't I don't buy that. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. I mean, obviously, one of the more vocal people we saw was uh, smited head coach uh, Joe Judge, who was gonna who was talking about the integrity of the game. This and that I don't know if he even mentioned the Eagles by name. Um, you know, the integrity of not letting that six and 10 uh, Giants team in, into the playoffs. So, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. But the reason that I OK, here, here's here's how I view it from from a higher level is you have it depends on how you view the team and like who are their stakeholders in, as far as the team is concerned. So you have ownership, you have the coaches and the GM. And then I also put the players in there maybe a little bit more heavily than some others. And I think if you're only looking at those first two elements, there really isn't any difference between uh, t- getting that that pick, tanking to get that pick in the in the last game, or bringing taking the guys out uh, before resting before the playoffs. So both intentions are to try to increase your chances, let's say, of winning a Super Bowl. One of them being this season, uh, another one being a future season. But when it comes to the players, that's when it becomes a little bit different for me because, again, I, if you went to all of the Buffalo Bills players or you went to all of the Steelers players. I don't think anyone's like, you know what, we, we should have been out there. I mean, there, possibly there could be someone who's, who's going out there. But I, I doubt that there's anyone who's, who's in that boat. And when it comes to the Eagles players, now we've had conflicting reports. Um, I think some of them were overhyped about the dissatisfaction that some, some players had there. But I can see people, especially people who may have been fans of Jalen Hurts, who, you know, this is his chance, right, to, to, to try to perform something over these four games. This is a spotlight game. This was the chance to have a signature come from behind victory. And they took him out for this for this veteran quarterback where I think he's a free agent. So, um, so I can see how some players may be upset at that. Some players may say, you know, our season's over. This could be my last game on the Eagles. Guys like Zach Ertz, guys like Jason Kelsey could be their last game on the Eagles. And they might say, they might be dissatisfied with that. So in that way, not that it's a big deal, it's it's looking at the current players and how they feel about it because a lot of them are not going to be around even next year, let alone two years, three years down the road when these draft picks start to pay off. Yeah, those are good points, but I would just underline some players. I, I, they do, I don't yeah. think we view this universally the same way. And if, It's kind of like uh, if you're a star player in the preseason – the incentives are so misaligned for you to even be on the on the on the field. And I know this is a different situation, but I just want to say there, there are young players out there trying to make a name for themselves. If you're a star player like a DN and someone on the opposing team offensive line or a fullback or someone just wants to light you up in the preseason to make a name for themselves and put your health in danger, like that's a it's a huge huge mismatch in terms of incentives. Um, for certain players in certain situations. I think at the end of the season, you'll even see some guys out there saying, man, you guys are really getting all hot and bothered about these Eagles. When when I was playing, no one wanted to be out there in week 17 when there, when nothing mattered at all. And so I think, I think it just depends. I think there are some players who care very, very much, some players perhaps like J.J. Watt. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I guess I post my take on, was on 538 in our chat earlier this week or last week. Was it this week? This week. Um, and it's basically that I think it's about money. I think, you know, you follow the money, you, you'll figure out what 
what's actually happening and what what and i think there are a lot of people who are pundits who are concerned that normalizing tanking is actually going to lead to a downturn in viewership and i just i i honestly don't see that happening yeah yeah i mean i don't i agree i don't see it happening but the two instances that i can think of in recent memory where you could pinpoint it was this last game so we had sunday night so of course it was disappointing for people watching the game i think i mean it created this big talking point for this week, right? So in a way, it created buzz about about the league, but you probably wouldn't want it to extend on. Um, and then, believe it or not, it's, it's, it's hard in retrospect to, to see this, but at the end of the 2014 season, week 17, uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers were up 27 at halftime, 22-7 at halftime, and they pulled a bunch of players at halftime and ended up losing that game and securing the number one pick, which then became uh, Jameis Winston, who... You know, again, people forget the fact that he had this incredible redshirt freshman season, the season before his last season, and he was really seen as as that type of guy. So those have happened. So we've only had it, it basically in the second half or in the fourth quarter, maybe of week seventeen. What about if we extend this out, like even to the absurd, right? If we extend this out and we say um, the the Jets were eliminated in week eleven, so what if week 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, they're already just just pulling guys out, playing you know third stringers, doing everything else. Is 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 there a problem when we go to that level? I mean, to the extent that the people you're playing um, are not the people who will benefit, or vice versa, um, I think there can be a problem with with competitive balance. So I mean, that's always an issue with tanking, and it's probably the only issue with tanking that I find. To be reasonable. The rest of it, if your job as a GM or a coach is to get the team to win, and this year is not going to be that year, planning for the future is absolutely rational and sharp. It there there is no reason why you would not try and optimize for the future. So that that part of it is just I mean it's just it's bulletproof. If you're a sharp organization that cares about winning, and your season is lost. There is no reason not to plan for that future. Um, but again, if you've played half your games hard and as best you can, and you've maybe beaten someone in your division who now needs you to defeat another division uh, rival of theirs, and you're now in tank mode, yeah, I get it. I get it. Um, but at the same time, you don't owe anyone in your division. You don't owe anyone in your conference. So, I mean, look, do what's best for you. Uh, people run up the score sometimes just because they feel like it. We saw the Bills just absolutely destroy the Patriots a couple of weeks back and just not stop passing despite the fact that they had them beat and they just had their their foot right on the throat. I think I lost the under on that one because of that that, that show. So uh, well, We'll talk about your betting exploits later, I'm sure. No, no, I would rather not. But uh, so it's... It, I think I think that that's probably the only kind of like through line that actually makes any sense to me, though, is that. that yeah. Kind of- yeah. You know, I guess in a way, the fact that there is such little job security in the NFL generally um, works against that in a, in a way. Right. Because I think there are coaches who don't they don't want to have a, a one in 15 or an 0 in 16 hung on them, uh, knowing that maybe they make it back next year. Uh, but even then that's going to potentially hurt them if they're let go in a couple of years. So I think there's, there's probably an issue there, even with the coaches where they say, you know, it's not worth it to me to participate in this, knowing that these losses are going to be become part of my record. And 
and, well, and all mean, that sort of stuff. If you're tanking, it should be the case that everyone's on board with what's going on. And if you get right. the feeling, if you get the feeling like knives are out in the organization and you're going to be the fall guy, fuck that then. Yeah, no way. I'm, I'm going to play hard. And, and I'm going to do that for my own record. Absolutely. But that is a problem of organizational alignment, not about tanking. Yeah, yeah. There may have been some misalignment in uh, in Cleveland for sure. Um, so let's 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 talk about coaching because that's a big that's a big topic now. Coaches and GM searches, everything will be wrapping up. We had our first announcement, I believe, which was Nick Casario being hired as the GM for the Texans, so we can take that off of the board. Um, for, for, first, let's, let's talk about Casario for a second. I'm, you know, okay, here, here's the thing. I, my contrarianism is, 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 is flashing with this situation here. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it's like an Adam Gase situation where you're like, hey, maybe it won't be that bad. And then we, 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 saw, we saw what happened. So for, for this situation, I feel like this Jack Easter, Easter Bee, right? I feel like... Easter Bunny, yeah. Easter Bunny. I feel like uh, this is like so juicy Everyone loves it. Everyone loves to, to, to put this guy as, as little finger, um, as, as pulling everything. And now this Casario thing really feeds into that, that he wanted Casario when the search firm came in and they spit out, you know, uh, a couple of retreads, a couple of new names, a couple of whoever, and they, and they went past all that and went straight to Casario. So people are, people are saying this, this – I've seen the complaint that this wasn't a legitimate search. And this was evidence of that. But, you know, if you look at, like, a, the, the Browns, who an organization I respect, if you would have said, who are they going to hire as their head coach and their GM before the search even started, you would have said Kevin Stefanski and Andrew Barry, and that's who, they, that's who they did hire. So is that, like, an illegitimate search? I, I don't know. What, what do you think about the issues there? Or am I going too far and I should stay with the consensus on anti-everything Texans with, with Easterby and, and there? So... I am not. I'm not a fan of how the Houston Texans have, have conducted themselves in this past two years uh, in terms right. of the front office. So I, I. So my prior is that they're not doing it correctly. Like uh, everything I know about Easter Bunny is that he is an unqualified uh, opportunist. Um, does that make you know some of the kind of criticisms leveled against him? Um, you know, are, are some of them overdone, overblown? Sure. I, I think that's probably the case. I, he, he just comes off as a typical, you know, you know, ladder climber. So that's fine. I mean, there's lots of those types of people in every organization. The fact that he was elevated so far so quickly, you know, speaks probably pretty poorly about the overall organization. So now you're, now you're investing all your hope in Nick Cesario. And, and, and I don't remember the last time, I guess Flores is it, that, that someone was exported from one Patriot way and turned into something amazing. I mean, the Dolphins shit away their last chance at the playoffs by, by losing their final game. I mean, I, and, and I guess Chan Gailey retired or, or, or resigned today uh, it, it, because his defense or his offense was so bad. So, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know what the case is. Uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that the, the Texans get it together in the front office because if they hire the right guy, they have the right quarterback to be good. Um, I think Watson, I think we would all agree, Deshaun Watson is one of the top three, maybe four quarterbacks in the league. So um, put, put, you know, put a good organization around him, uh, a good play caller and a good coach and, and get him some weapons. And I think uh, the Texans have a bright future. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think there are a couple of attractive things about the Texans. One, if they played the exact same way, 
they're going to get a lot more than four wins, right? So you have like that that upside built in too. It's kind of fun. I, I find it is somewhat fun to say, I don't have a lot to work with here, but how can I, you know, piece this together? Maybe you can trade back a bunch of times to try to generate a whole bunch of assets, or you can try to figure out in free agency who are the really undervalued guys, or try to flip and restructure some contracts. So I think there's a lot of actually fun and interesting things you could potentially do there, even if you're you're hampered by that somewhat. But I thought what was interesting about this hire is we had the GM hire, and then you're going to have the coach hire, which would be the traditional model. It would be something like what the Jets are going to be doing. You're going to have uh, Joe Douglas as, as leading this model. But there's also been – and there's something about thinking about from a big picture when we talk about uh, some other places like what's going on in, in Jacksonville, uh, what's going on in, De- in Detroit, and what's going on in Atlanta, where both of those positions are vacant. And we've seen this, this coaching GM alignment model, right? And more than just words. Yeah. Hire them together or I mean I think the circumstance ends up being to varying degrees that the coach is really the 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 guy, right? Like like when Shanahan was hired, I think he's the guy. Lynch is obviously very valuable, but it was more like he had to fit in with Shanahan more than the the reverse, right? Um and Rule's gonna hire someone for the Panthers here. What what do you think about the that model it seems to have been decently successful um but i'm a little bit i'm always a little bit concerned about coaches who have too much sway over over these some of these personnel decisions so what's your take well i mean i have a long rant on hiring coaches but this is a slightly different question i think this. do you want to rant now and 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 i think think it's because i have another juicy nugget here and i think like turning this around I think about there's there's a hidden web of connections that we don't often talk about in the NFL. And one of them is the agent network. And and right now, the guy who just got hired on the Texans, uh, Nick Cesario, uh, shares an agent with Easter Bunny. And another guy that's on the same agent's uh, uh, list of, of clients is Brian Dabble. And so if you're going to, if you have a chance to bet right now on who Houston will hire as its head coach, I would go ahead and see what the prices are on Brian Dabble, and I would probably put a bet on it um, because that's just the way things work in the NFL is you get the agent network and that, and that back channel is not illegal. Um, he can talk to whoever he wants to, and he can pass along information and, and being a part of that agent network is basically you're in the King making channel. And so um, that's what I think is going on. And I think that, um, you know, when I do get into my rant about, how we hire head coaches. Um, I'll speak more to that, but I think that that is really what dominates more than this idea of we're going to hire um, a head coach and a GM at the same time, or one right after the other, or one having a pick on the other. Because if you recall, Adam Gase was the head coach and he picked, he picked the current um, uh, GM, Joe, what the hell is his name? I forget his name. Yeah, Joe Douglas. Yeah, I don't Joe know how Douglas. much picking was going on there. But yeah, he was definitely, he came in when there was another, there's another GM who was, uh, who was let go and so on. Yes. Right. And so I think, you know, many people would say, well, he was next in line. You know, the, 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 the kingmakers had decided that he was next in line and he was a good candidate for GM Douglas. Um, but now, like the Jets, I think they're not a very, I mean, for a host of reasons, they're not a very good landing spot for a, a, a really high-end head coaching candidate. And one of them is, is that Joe Douglas is already punting on the Darnold question saying, if anything goes wrong in New York, the coach is going to have to take the blame on the quarterback situation um, because, he, because Joe Douglas has punted. He said, I'm but what, what, what's, what's punting? I'm sorry. Like just that he's, he's not, 
already saying he's going to draft someone instead of him. Right, right. He hasn't said. I have. I mean, does anyone say that though? At this point, it's kind of like our guy, Josh Rosen. Josh Rosen's our guy up until the day before the The draft situation. The the PR matters, though. I mean, yeah, you you can say that no one says it, but no one says it because no one wants to own it. Um, And and when when you when you put the situation the way he has, or what Shad Khan is doing in, in the Jaguars, where he's saying I'm going to make the 101. I mean, these are these are these are things that are going to chase away good candidates who are uh, for GM or for head coach. And uh, and I think those are bad ways to proceed. OK, so what's what what is the way to proceed? Lead us, lead us to the promised land. OK, there's a few teams who need your service. I'm not sure you can bill after they because they all listen to this podcast, of course. Oh, all of so them, I don't yeah. know if you're going to be able to to build them on this, but this will be part of your 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 resume for next for we, we, maybe we'll start. We'll start our own search firm. It seems like there's they're sorely lacking uh, in, in some independent operators out there. So for, for our search firm. For uh, Hermsmeyer Cole, I'll let you have uh, first billing. What 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 are what are the tenants? What, what what do we need to do for hiring coaches? Sure, I think I think you start off the normal way, right? You need a CEO type coach. It would be my first choice. You know, a guy who can get the team to play hard. You know, the guy who can get the team up for a game, and that can be an offensive guy, can be a defensive guy, but he needs to do that one thing that I think all coaches must, and that is they have to command respect from the players. And they need to work with the front office. They need to have okay. So how do you measure that? How do you how do you how do you find that out? Interview well, interviews. Um, I mean, look references. You, you know it when you see it. Look look uh, look at um, uh, gosh. I mean, in any of the Parcells, any of these guys from the past yeah. who who just they they you seem to know it when you see it. So, but I'm not saying this is determinative. But I think this is if they don't have this ability, if you can't sense this ability, then that is a, a deal breaker. So. Right. This is an intuitive thing. Right. I mean, but look, I mean, people talk about it as if it's an impossible thing, but I don't think I don't think the lack I, I don't think that this quality itself makes a good head coach. And it's these other things that actually make them uh, unsuccessful. But you okay. do need to have this. This is like table stakes. OK, so part of what being a CEO coach means there's no fiefdoms. Right. So you need these. This isn't silos. There isn't this like lack of exchange of information between the different parts of the organization. The CEO coach, and this is why I describe him as such, needs to be able to have a supple mind and needs to be able to take information from all parts of the organization and apply them to the field. And so now it comes to the second, the the more important things, I think, are the things that determine whether you're successful at the NFL level. And that's, do you want this OC type coach who can create continuity on the offense through his vision for that side of the ball? Or do you want like a, or do you want just a pure CEO type who just, takes his hands off, but he can hire and attract upcoming offensive talent, right? Um, Because I do think you need to focus on that side of the ball to be long-term successful. Um, Either way will work. But again, the deal breaker will, for me, is always going to be in if he will not listen to other parts of the organization. Also, I think there's a market inefficiency in allowing all these kingmakers I was talking about, these agents and, and, and this web, this network web, to to actually put put forward the list of potential candidates. Um, I think that there's a market inefficiency in that you, if you were dipped down into position coaches, and if you could, if you were good, if you, or if you had a good GM who actually could spot this type of talent um, and interview those folks at the position coach level, I think uh, you could flip the bird to the agent network and that seems to run the league. And I think you could find some, some uh, under some real gems. But back to uh, the typical candidates, right? The problem is 
as we've seen with guys like McVeigh and Kingsbury and even Shanahan is that scheme geniuses seldom want to listen to the other parts of the Oregon game management. Right. And that's just a deal killer for me. So no sideline coach should be making challenge decisions in a game. No sideline coach should be keeping track of go for it. They shouldn't be determining when it's two to get it. Like th- those things need to be done from a booth. No sideline coach should be doing the mental math on two point attempts. There's charts for that. All of that should be outsourced. And more than that, the entire process of going over special situations, how to deal with them when they arise, um, all that stuff needs to be a discussion, gameplay, uh, game plan specific, and it needs to be holistic and that all, and the coach, the head coach needs to be open to that. Um, and I think if you have those things, then these, these situations like what's going on in say, for instance, uh, San Diego or LA, the chargers, Whoever takes that job, if he can just be competent and be open to game management, he will instantly look like he has made a huge difference in a positive way for that team. Like it's such a great situation because he's following a guy who's completely incompetent in all those ways. This is just easy, easy stuff. Like you don't even have to be good. You just have to just not be incompetent. And, and so I think that, you know, those, those little low hanging fruit things are, are, are the ones I would really be looking for. And again, I just wrap this rant up with these are just all guidelines. And obviously, you know, rules are meant to be broken. If Andy Reid came available, you know, you just throw it all out the window and grab the, the guy you know is great. Oh, yeah. No, 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 no doubt. Well, that actually Andy Reid reminds me of uh, of one thing. So, OK, so I think because I was going to ask you as part of this, how much is important that you're, you know, because a lot of people want to import a offensive mind. Uh, the Joe Brady thing is out there, which to me I mean, whatever you'd have to meet with the guy you'd have to talk to his references but this is a guy who i believe was a graduate assistant like four and a half years ago or something like that um has a couple of years as being a, a quote-unquote offensive assistant which is like not even a, a not even a coach uh position coach with the saints the in the past brandon, the same thing with brandon staley like he was just plucked out of nowhere by a friend but but three or four years ago and now another guy plucked him out of almost nowhere to be the DC and now he's a head coaching candidate. That seems fast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, these, yeah, it's amazing how they just narrow all teams kind of narrow in on these exact, these exactly the same names when there are so many different available names, but I, I don't want to go on that too much. So, so you're, you're not hitting on that too hard. So that's good. So that's kind of in alignment. What I'm thinking as far as not needing the, the play caller, not needing to say, you know, we're going to import a good offense and then hopefully the head coaching stuff works out. But when it comes to determining who is the CEO type uh, who is going to be willing to listen to these to these things? Um, if it's not a former head coach, if you don't have a history of how did they work with the game management stuff, how did they work with the fourth downs, how did they work uh, uh, dealing with other parts of the team, I feel like that can be a little bit tough to gauge because if you're in a room with them and you ask them, uh, they're going to be like, yeah, yeah, oh, totally. <laughs> I'm in. I'm in on working with everyone. I, I'm going to do it. You know, like like Hugh Jackson well, now, I mean, like a, two years after the fact, claims that he didn't even know they were they were, they were were tanky. You know, he didn't even know that they – he's like, that was never I, – I didn't know that was going on. So these guys have very selective memories when it comes to some sort of these things. So, like, because I talk about references. Supposedly that's what the Browns do a lot. The Browns did a lot is they go and they talk to all the players. They talk to everything. So they want to know what do these guys do more than what they, what they said they're going to do. So I guess that that's the question. How do you actually pin people down? Because when, when you're in the shit and bullets are flying, you, you don't really know what these guys are going to do versus what they told you they're going to do in the interview. That's fair. I mean, but do you really think that if you said, 
and you do it in a neutral way and you just ask right. them a certain situation, do you really think they're going to not tell you what they would do? I mean, I suppose if they, if you were, if you were signaling the answer you wanted and you're fucking the, the entire thing up to be damned, um, then yeah, you know, I mean, a, a smart coach would be like, well, I want to get the job. I'll tell him what he wants to hear. But I mean, if you can, if you can ask the question in such a way that it's open-ended and that there are, there are multiple right answers, you can maybe get at his actual philosophy. But I also think you could just look at what the hell they've done. Like, I mean, yeah, yeah. But I think that's hard to know for guys who haven't been a head coach, right? That's true. That's fair enough. Um, and, and I, I do, you, you know, you say like, should you interview the, the players and, and the coaches around them? And, and I think you should talk to position coaches, like talk to position coaches, because look, those guys, all of them think they're good enough to be OCs. All of them think they're someday they're going to be a head coach. And so all of them are sitting in back rooms and talking shit about the OC. Like, and so I think, or the DC or whomever it is, it's ahead of them because they think they can do the job better. I think you would talk to those people and just say, so what's his, what's his philosophy here? What, how do you think he handles the situation? So yeah, I think that's definitely a sharp way to go. Yeah, yeah. It's not even that I think someone in an interview is going to be lying to you or telling you what they want to hear. The problem is they could they could be just lying to themselves, right? Like that's people, people don't even know. The people say, oh, of course, I'm going to do the right thing when it's time to do the right thing. But will you actually do the right thing when it's the time, time to do the right thing? Because there will always be a reason. As we've seen across the board, no matter what, there's always a reason. You can always find some reason for not doing what seems like the the non-traditional or risky thing to do you, in the moment, in the moment. So that would be the concern of my for for interview versus versus not. So let's let's look across the coaches then. Are there any coaches that pop out to you? You say this guy, this guy has 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 he, he's the type. He's the type that I like. And what about college coaches also? Because Urban Meyer's in this discussion, and yeah. I'll tell you, Urban Meyer. I, I don't know if I'd even want to interview this guy because like I've seen him on TV. And he's good. He's good at just like talking and he'd probably have like most owners mesmerized within, within 30 seconds. And they're like, okay, whatever. You're, a, you're, you're the guy, here's your 12 million a year that you supposedly don't want or maybe want. Um, and, 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 and go do it. Kind of like what Matt Rule did to, uh, did to Tepper in, in, uh, in Carolina, where you just get in a room with this guy and they're so charismatic and so they're like a preacher or something like that. And they just get you to, to do what they want to do. So, so I also want to talk about Meyer for a second, but what, who, who do you see out there as, as the best candidates? Well, I mean, I, I think the, the, the best candidates are, are probably the ones everyone's heard about, uh, from my opinion, because they're the ones we know the most about, but it, it isn't, I mean, I've given you my framework. Right. And 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 I think the probably the very best candidates are probably none of the people on this list. Like, for instance, look, I think Dabble's going to get a job. I think he's a fine pick. I think Arthur Smith is going to get a job. And I think he's probably a fine pick. They've both been a part of organizations that do sharp things at times when you wouldn't expect it. Like we saw the Titans make that one play with the, taking the, uh, the five-yard penalty at the, I forget the exact situation, but yeah, it was 12 men on the field. Take purpose to take 12 men on the field. 12 men on the field. So look, I, I think he's been a part of an organization that thinks that way. And so that's at least a marker for me that he, he, he might be a worthwhile hire. And the same thing with, uh, uh, with Brian Dabble. But I, I am, I'm hesitant to give these guys as much credit as perhaps others are for their offensive genius. And that wouldn't be the reason why I would hire them. Again, I would be looking for a supple mind, someone who could work within the organization. Um, maybe Sal is that way. Um, I think he might be a good hire. He might be a great CEO type coach, but I just don't know enough about him. Um, 
Eberflus, I don't know enough about him. So, um, but anyway, I, I've given you my framework and I, I think uh, I think that's, I would do that. And I would also look at position coaches. It's not unheard of to grab them, uh, um, pluck them out from, you know, like I think uh, Joe, Joe Judge was a, was at the time when he was hired, was a wide receivers position coach. And I think he also had some responsibility with special teams or previously had, but it's not unheard of to do that kind of hiring. Yeah. Now this is a related thing about the whole, who's the hot offensive coordinator, defense coordinator. I mean, if you look at the names we're talking about uh, Panthers, Joe Brady, they didn't have the greatest offense, but it was better than expectation, right? Better with Teddy Bridgewater and all that there. Uh, Brian Dable, you know, Josh Allen is, is the, the top three quarterback in the NFL, uh, Arthur Smith, he's turned Ryan Tannehill into Superman over there. Uh, we mentioned Brandon Staley, and th- th- that defense is playing well. Now, what about, and this is something I've thought about, what about looking at guys whose units maybe aren't even that successful, right? Because I, I can understand as a heuristic, you're just going to say to yourself, you know, all else being equal, why not just vet the best, the people who have the best results, right? Um but I think you would probably agree with me somewhat that coaching on the hierarchy of what drives results is probably perceived as being higher than what it actually is because we can explain the variance between what we believe talent is and results. We, we can just throw that to coaching, right? So like the coach of the year every single year has been, and it's actually been tracked, it's, it's been the team who outperforms their Vegas win expectation at the beginning of the year. It's been that for like seven straight years or something or something like that. Um, but is that true? Are they doing it? We don't know. So, so what about what about that? Like, is there too much focus on these these offensive and defensive coordinators who just have good defenses? I mean, everyone loves when when Brandon Staley's in these articles talking about how great their defense is. He may have he probably has two of the top five defensive players in the entire NFL on the same team, right? So, uh, what what about that question? Well, I mean, so uh, a coach can be a limiter on talent. I. I think we give them too much credit for maximizing talent. How does that sound? So I think I think for 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 Staley, like he realized he had two of the best players in the NFL, and he realized that what he'd learned and and for his too high scheme that it would fit perfectly within that. Um, that he he asks his linemen to do an extra, extra half gap, and and that Donald is fan, uh, uh, excuse me, Donald is fantastic for that, and so he matched his scheme to his players and he allowed them to be who they were and that's great and so I think that uh, I think that you know he unlocked that defense and uh, their yards per play allowed is fantastic this year so I have nothing bad to say about him and I love his approach actually um, I just think I, I would agree with you we probably give him too much credit but there are ways like it depends on what your outcome metric if you're trying to sit here and say that like wins should go to the coach I mean that's rough but there are things you can do like if you look at the, the some of the coaches we've talked about um, and you look at how often they do something smart, like play action, and then you see how often, uh, what percentage uh, of the play action plays they, they run on passes, and then how much of their passing offense comes off those plays. The differential like you would expect if it was just running play action was just the same as every other part of your offense, you would expect there to be no difference, right? And that's what the case is with the Panthers. They ran play action 20% of the time, they got 20% of their pass, passing yards off play action. So for the Panthers... One of the most efficient play calls in football, they got normal passing yards off of. Whereas with the Titans, Arthur Smith, 33% of the time they ran play action, he got 44.7% of their yards. So I would, what I would attribute that difference to is scheme, right? Um, I don't think you can say that Ryan Tannehill is that much better of a play action passer than anyone else. 
I think that, you know, maybe you give, maybe you give Derek Henry a little bit of credit here that we, we, we often do not do for the running back. But in any event, um, I think that, you know, you can, you can then kind of narrow down as like, well, we do have some ways to understand who's, who's, who might be a better uh, play caller than the other, but then you get, you get stuck on that whole problem of, do you really want a great play caller? Do you want a CEO coach? And again, I, I kind of tend to, tend to lean towards the idea that I want a CEO, not a, not a, not a top play caller, because when they come in and they have the idea that they got the job because of their play calling prowess, they're not going to want to change anything. They're going to want to do what they know, and they're not going to want to listen to other people. And, and that's a, that's a death knell for me. Yeah. I mean, I think there's also this interesting phenomenon where it's just skewing younger and younger, right? I mean, I guess, I guess Brian Dable is not that young, but the other names that are being floated out there are normally guys who have been successful and they only have a record of success, but how much of that is a function of, of having a short record, right? Like it's difficult to only have a record of success when you've been around for a long time. I mean, Shanahan had a, had a longer track record before he eventually um, got where he is now, but I think that's interesting. You know, the things why I think is wild to me about about Arthur Smith is, I mean, there shouldn't even matter at all in, in the evaluations. It's just a separate thing. Like, I can't get out of my mind the fact that this guy has been working all these hours, and you know, he's worked up the, the chain this far and this and that. And I don't know if you knew this, but he's like a billionaire. Like his dad owns is like a, is like the CEO and owner of FedEx or something like that. Like, it's just a I wild story that. to me that I someone could like be in that position. Um, when they're in that type of family lineage, but that just shows you how much he must he must love what he does. So I, I guess I take that as a positive, as a positive for there. Or at least it'd be a good person to know. It'd be a good person to be on the on the, on the right on the right side of potentially potentially there. So that, that, that may be a... maybe he gets better too. He could be the owner someday. <laughs> there you go. He's he's interviewing you in these in these in these interviews to see how he can buy you out. So um, and, and lastly, the the college thing. Urban Meyer. You have any 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 thoughts about college coaches coming in? I mean, we had Rule last year, and Rule was like the hot coaching hire, I think, which is, I, I just, I mean, there are like hundreds of college coaches, right? So I'm not even sure how that's, how that's necessarily determined, um, especially for someone like a program like Baylor, which is a little bit on the, on the mid-market size. Uh, but anyway, what do you think about bringing these guys from, from college? I think that it could work, maybe. I think there's just so many differences between college and the pros and what a head coach is asked to do in each. Um, and I think that the NFL historically has hired from the, uh, uh, the college coaching range for the wrong reasons. Um, like they'll hire because of scheme or they'll hire because they ha- they were like adjacent to Patrick Mahomes or something like that. You know, like I, I think <laughs> Who could I, you I, be talking about that, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, and I actually had a lot of hope for Kingsbury. He's just turned out to be terrible. Like, uh, I mean, again, he doesn't listen to other parts of the organization. He's too into his calling his own plays and, and to his own detriment, he doesn't he doesn't stray from what he knows. Like I think I saw someone show a chart of the routes run by uh, DeAndre Hopkins in the last game, and he did not move him off of Jalen Ramsey. Like he just he did he did nothing to try and get his best player open in space, and that just wild me. That's just it's inconscious. It's unconscionable. So uh, I think uh, I think we you know NFL historically is hired from the college coaches in, in the wrong way. I, I don't think there's anything necessarily you know disqualifying about a great uh, college coach like uh, is it why do you think Nick Saban failed did he just not have enough time I think that's kind of part of it he just went back to college right he used he used yeah. the Dolphins as a, as a stepping stone to get to BAM yeah I don't how can you know I mean it, it's a different it's a different model right so you could say this guy has head coaching experience but 
in, in college, you're more of the king. You have a larger influence on personnel merely by the fact that you're recruiting, right? So you have that recruitment um, lever. Your your position vis-a-vis the players is like the different, you know, the differential of the standing is just huge. And in some way, there's not even like an, an owner in the same sort of way, right? So you don't even have that check on, on a coach. I mean, in some ways, like Nick Saban is more powerful than – um, whatever, um, I'm trying to think of the, the, the yeah. athletic director, right. That was, just, it was escaping me for a second. Like an athletic director would probably be replaced if Nick Saban wanted him replaced, right. Or her replaced. Um, so anyways, I think that's, that may be part of it is it's just difficult to, to gauge that. And then the transition I, is difficult. I mean, we saw Pete Carroll, right. So he came from USC, but then again, he was a head coach before that with new England failed, went to SC and then came out of SC to Seattle. So there, there are all kinds of paths. I think I would rather be a lifer for a, a great college program as a head coach than I would in the NFL. It's just that the job security is so much better. As you say, the power structure is, is tilted in your favor. Um, yeah. I mean, so, so, if, so maybe that's another problem is that you're not going to pry away the best college coaches um, who have these CEO qualities um, because they're just in a better position. No, I mean, they're getting paid now, too. So they, <laughs> in some cases, almost just as well. All right, so let's let's rotate over. Playoff talk. We have to talk about it, I guess. It's going on. So playoffs? Um, so let's talk about some, some playoff talk here. Uh, so I mentioned the Ravens specifically. So maybe we'll talk about them first. But like I said, this is going to be in the context of, like, what do we think about the Ravens? Because I think the Ravens are a good test case for the undulations that teams can take during the season. And now they're coming out looking pretty good, having won the last few games, leading the league, I believe, in point differential. Uh, I'm sure I have to check that. Um, they're in, you know, the top five by a lot of by a lot of metrics as far as the team's strength, despite the fact that they're probably not viewed in that in that category right now. Although in Vegas, you know, if we go to Vegas, they're a three point favorite over the the Titans at the Titans. So I think Vegas is is closer to reality, but I don't know if you. People believe that in the general public or in the media and the media, this and that. So tell me, what are your thoughts about, about the Ravens coming into this? And d- does this, does this way that this, this, this waves that they've gone through, does this mean anything? Or do we have to just open up our, our view and not get too myopic about anything and, and say over the course of the last, you know, not only this year, but last year, this is the team that we're talking about here in a longer view. Yeah, I think, I, I, I mean, that, that is a big part of it, but I also think that, you know, there's something to be said for beating the teams you're supposed to beat, um, and, and to do it convincingly. Um, and you know, there's the, that old adage that the good teams beat the snot out of the teams they should, and and the and the Ravens are built to do that. They they have a strong defense that actually feeds off of a good of their offense when their offense is good. And um, you know, if I was going to, you know, we didn't do that later. I'd talk about the problems with the Ravens, but I, I think that. Going in, I don't think I would discount that streak. They beat Cleveland, which they needed to do. Um, and that was, you know, an important game. Um, they lost to the Patriots in a really weird game in the weather. I, I think I think that their their streak could have been longer. Um, and and I think that they're good enough and they match up well enough against certain teams that I don't think many people want to face them. Unfortunately, they're matched up first off against the team they match up, I think, in one of the toughest ways against I don't think they match up well with Tennessee um I think that what they're going to want to do against Tennessee is probably 
what the coaches and everyone on the, on that staff are going to want to do, which is stop the run and keep it a close game and, you know, try and eke out yards. I, I don't think that's the game they're going to win. Um, I think last year they, they passed a lot more than they were used to during the regular season. I think they're not going to do that again. Um, I just think that's the, unfortunately, I just think that that's how organizations react when they're, when they have tough losses is they just, they tighten up, they get more conservative and uh, I, I fear that's how they're going to play this game. I'm not sure it's going to work out the way they hope. Yeah, I mean, like I said, three-point favorite, which the the Titans' defense has got awful, right? So that's more about it. But the Titans' offense has been has been really good. Um, the game that they played, you know, if we look at last year, what happened in in that game, it was just a very strange game against the Titans, right? So they didn't convert. I think they were over on their fourth down conversions, but they definitely didn't convert the first couple of them. And these weren't, you know, fourth and eight or something like that. These were, these were one, these were two yards. Um, you know, they got totally taken out of their game plan after some long play. I mean, it was a play action shot from Tannehill and well, others. Immediately that, after they, they lost on their fourth right. down conversions, the Tennessee scored right. in both cases. It was, it was like they were immediately punished. Yeah. So they, so they had that, they had turnover where, they weren't the most egregious. I remember one of them was a little bit high to Mark Andrews, and it went over. So there was there was turnover situation. Lamar Jackson threw the ball. I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but he threw the ball like 50-something times, right? Like 60 times maybe, which was just totally out of whack in what they were doing. Threw for over 400 yards. So it's just really difficult to, to get a gauge on that. Um, but you mentioned this matchup thing. So mm, I, I'm just wondering – it's one of these situations where, like I said, they're a three-point favorite going into it, but I can easily see afterwards if they lose this game, everyone's going to come back and says we were idiots for not, not just looking at what happened last year, but not attributing enough to the fact that these two teams may not be as as well. I mean, the Ravens may not be as well aligned to beat them as we thought. Yeah, and and that's my fear right? because, like, as a team in terms of team strength, at, at five thirty-eight, we have them fifth, we have them above. We they should be a favorite, like you know, based on all the metrics. But, you know, when when you get in the playoffs and you're playing against a team that's had your number and look, I mean, it would be great if this was the redemptive moment for Lamar and they fell behind and they came back to win. Right. So all the narratives get shattered. Can't beat, can't win in the playoffs, can't beat Tennessee and can't come from behind. I mean, that would be a tremendous, tremendous story for Baltimore. And I hope it happens. But um I think there's a reason when you have multiple narratives all pointing in the same direction, um, and those three are probably the most impactful ones, um, I start to worry. What do you think about Lamar going into this? Because he he has a, he wasn't he was pretty good to start the season. He had this really long lull um, as far as poor play, especially poor play passing the ball. He's been pretty strong the last few weeks, although even games like the Cleveland game, I think he was he was sacked or he scrambled on like 35% of his dropbacks. Like it really wasn't necessarily a, a very healthy functioning passing game. You have any thoughts about him going into this? Not so much about Lamar as more that they need a third weapon uh, in the, in the, in the passing game. And, you know, they have Dez now, but I don't, I don't I'm not sure he's it. Um, so I, I think, you know, and this kind of goes to the way they approached the off season is they, they lost in the playoffs passing decided they have a good team. I think they missed the causality. I think that the defense does good when the offense is good. And so they beefed up the defense and uh, look, if they, if they end up winning it all, if Baltimore ends up winning it all. I don't think you're going to be hearing a lot about analytics in Baltimore uh, for the foreseeable future. 
uh, because there will be a, a faction inside the Baltimore that won, right? The defense first faction will have won. And, um, and, I, and I think that that's, uh, you know, for people like me who, who would rather see um, the more, the, the, the stronger bet went out. Um, it's not that I'm rooting against them. I just think that that would be one outcome for, for a successful playoff run for the, uh, for the Ravens. But they're going to need to prove that right now, this week against the Titans. They need to stop that offense. And, um, you know, this beefed up defense is it, it, if they're going to try and do it via the run, they're going to open themselves up to that play action, which the, which Arthur Smith and, and Tannehill and, and, and AJ and everyone on that team do so well. And they take advantage of teams whenever they try and do whatever they need to do to stop Derrick Henry. Um, so I think that I think the smart move is to play off, let them encourage them to run and make sure you don't bite on that play action. Make sure you cover those receivers. And if they do that, and they take a lead, an early lead. Yeah, I, I really like I really like Baltimore's chances. But yeah, absent those factors, I just I worry. Yeah, no, I, I want to see I want to see uh, Ravens Packers in the Super Bowl. So then we can get a graphic that said both of these teams drafted a running back in the second round, and boom, they're both <laughs> they're both they're both in the Super Bowl. So AJ Dillon and J.K. Dobbins, you know, led. Led the way. That would, I mean, that would be even better. That that would be probably that would like to highlight my life as far as uh, a faulty uh, causation uh, standard on there. Um, I'm also I'm kind of interested to see this Titans defense a little bit because, okay, so uh, like their former defensive coordinator uh, Dean Pease, my man Dean Pease, um, he. He, he he actually gave credit to Buffalo when they played, when they watched them play Buffalo as far as this defensive scheme. I think a lot of people have, have talked about copying that, forcing Lamar to throw it outside, do it, all that sort of stuff. So I'm, I'm going to be interested to see to see what happens on that side of the ball. Um, actually, let's talk about – okay, let's, let's talk about a couple different things. So you mentioned the point differential, and, and you know you beat up on bad teams like you're supposed to. So what do we think about the Chiefs right now who are not beating up on bad teams? They're not beating up on good teams. They're beating these teams. And I think a score differential could be a little bit deceiving with them because I believe in three or four out of the last five games, they were up by multiple touchdowns in the second half, and then they just it ended up being closer than it, than it looks. Um, but what do you think about the Chiefs? Because I, I have two sides of my brain. One side of my brain says the Chiefs should – obviously are the best team and should be viewed as such. And the other side of my brain says, if it wasn't the Chiefs, if it was just another team, and I was looking at this objectively as team A, team B, and so on, I would be much lower on this team than than I am. Um, even if I knew that they had this superstar quarterback, just not having this uh, like emotional attachment to... Uh-huh. Oh, to, to 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 their to the fact that they that, that they'll come back and win is what we say right but then you know in prior seasons I, they lost to the Seahawks during the regular season they lost to, obviously to the Patriots is what we saw they lost in the playoffs they lost to the Rams in that shootout game like they were there were then those in those opportunities like the Chiefs had a chance to win those games and they didn't so it's not like they're always going to win it in the end as, as we assume they're going to and what it feels like inevitability right now so that's a little bit of my hesitation with them you know, I, I understand what you're saying. I, you, until you added the, well, they have Mahomes. Like, I mean, right. when, well, we don't know he's Mahomes. We just know that he's elite, like elite quarterback. Cause I think there's even a mythical thing about him, right. That goes beyond his, his numbers at this point, a little, little bit beyond his numbers. I, I don't know. Like I, I, I've been working on an article on him and, 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 and I, I say, I write that he, he's, he's the most talented quarterback of all time. I think that is supported by the evidence and he may be the greatest quarterback of all time so if you have that guy um i don't know 25 percent shot to win the super bowl whatever we have him at now 
um, I think is completely legitimate. And and um, and I mean, there's no reason why they wouldn't be the favorite when if you have that guy. Um, I, team strength aside, like I mean, and, and just seeing what he does, like one of the most amazing things I ever I've seen the way to kind of like put into perspective how good Mahomes is is that when teams know he's passing, the more they know he's passing, the better he is relative to his peers, relative to himself. Like when you look at when you look at situations where the where he, they should be running, like where the probability of a run is really really high, he's actually worse. He's actually worse at play action. Like the things that other people do and take for granted, like the Tannehills of the world, you know, he's he's not really amazing at. He's good at all the hard things, like all the really difficult things, like third down and long, like like things you wouldn't expect to continue, like right as as we say in uh, you know what's what's stable, what's what's predicted. And, and yet he continues to be good at those things. And so um, for that reason, my feeling is that you can never bet against the Chiefs and Mahomes, um, you know, regardless of, of what our, our, our broad measures say. Because I think when you have possibly the best quarterback of all time, um, you make allowances. Okay, but let's, let's flip that around then. Let's flip quarterback who looked like he could have played himself out of the league potentially. I mean, I know some people aren't going to like to hear that uh, this season. And now is MVP candidate Josh Allen. So he's he's the opposite, right? So he's the guy who's been tearing it up. Um, I, I've seen these trailing. I don't know what the metric was either 150, 200 drop back uh, EPA numbers. I believe is higher than anyone right now. Um, not over in the entire season, but like over the last half of the season, essentially. What do we think about Allen? How are we viewing him? Uh, I saw you had a spicy regression, Josh Allen regression post. And I think I do believe that, but I'm also beholden to this idea of like, yeah, maybe 2021, you know, I don't want to get too invested in him regressing now, even though I know intellectually there, there is a good chance of that mid season lull that we saw, like that could happen again, but now in the playoffs. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not selling him in the playoffs. He is. I think he's feeling it. And I think there's something to be said for that. He's still got dabble and that their, their chemistry and the entire team believes, and they all seem to be playing at a high level. So all those things that we always kind of brush aside as quantitative analysts, I think they matter in the playoffs and, um, and, and it's not quantifiable, but it is certainly a thing. It's just out there. It's in the air. And, and the other thing about Allen is his confidence is just off the, I mean, he is, making every throw like ridiculous throws like it's so fun to watch and i don't want it to so i hope he i hope they make a deep run in the playoffs just because it's so much fun to watch um but if you're talking the next year no all bets are off next year especially if things change because they always do the league catches up the meta changes dabble might be replaced by a guy who doesn't take advantage of allen and, and, and digs the way that dabble did i mean just some, there's a million reasons why regression always happens um but I mean, to the broader question of like, should we, should we reevaluate the way we think about toolsy players like Allen? I mean, I don't know. I, I think it, I think the, I think the, the answer is more along the lines of, of what Kate Massey says when he does his stuff, he says, you know, like we have data that suggests what the true range of outcomes should be, but then you need to add a fence factor. Like you just need to. And, and I think that, you know, we need to build more systemic uncertainty into our football forecast just because of what I mentioned, the meta, the, the as Eric Eager likes to call the non-stationarity um, of, the, of the environment in the NFL. Because of all that, what we think was true before is probably not going to be true in the future. Guys like Allen who have all these different problems that we've said in the past are no good, um, can be made to be good, like just like Tannehill um, with the right set of 
play calling types of plays, aggressiveness in passing, um, you know, and again, growth that perhaps we don't understand completely. Um, you know, uh, you know, we talk about growth, they talk about growth mindset in baseball, you know, maybe, maybe Allen has that. And maybe he was this late bloomer that everyone talks about and that he finally had it all click. I mean, if all that's true, then he is one of one, as far as I'm concerned and, and, and good for them. And if he goes on to have a stellar career and it, he and Mahomes are at the top of the lead for the rest of their careers, I think that would be tremendous for football. Um, but my, my priors are, are such that even if I give a higher probability of that outcome than I did before, it's still not, it's still incredibly likely, unlikely given his, uh, his, his, his college and first two years in the league performance. Yeah. You know, this, this discussion has come up about how, if we really are, should change our, our view of quarterback prospects. And I think it's like a two part thing. One, we've seen the success of some guys that who have been deemed as having uh more natural skill, not skill, talent, talent, right? Um, I think there are, there are like objective things about Josh Allen and how hard he can throw the ball, how big he is, how fast he is, how athletic he is, those sorts of things that are, that, that you can say you can, he could make all the throws, not necessarily accurately, but he could do that, that, that sort of stuff beforehand. So, but, but part of that is that they're saying shoot for the upside because the floor level of quarterback has gone up by, by how, how things are schemed. Presumably the fact that there's a, such a short passing game now that makes it like a, a larger swath of the quarterback society can, can execute some, some of these things. So I, I do get that, but I've also heard that in the context of someone like Lamar Jackson saying, like, as if he was a draft or upside guy. But couldn't people just say that he was a, he was a low upside guy because he couldn't pass the ball? Like, he didn't have a strong arm. He did. So I don't. I, I, and then like Deshaun Watson, that was the same thing was said about Watson is he didn't have a strong arm. He didn't. He didn't do this. So I don't know. Like, I feel like we're re- we're rewriting after the fact a little bit here with guys with certain guys. We're saying, well, these guys all had a lot of potential because you know we've seen them like max out this <laughs> this potential. So we should. But I, I don't know if Jackson would be benefited at all by by people saying you need like an upside quarterback because he if anything he might have been seen as a floor type of quarterback knowing he can run but not knowing he can pass but he's not but he's never going to be able to pass i mean it was more than that it was he was too slight he didn't have the build to be an nfl player yeah. he, you right. know I, I don't re- i don't recall the the arm uh strength argument but i do recall that he couldn't throw over the middle like wild statements by scouts like uh i mean over the middle is the easiest place to throw i i, I can understand like for instance people said Burrow, baby arm Burrow, couldn't make the outside the numbers throws. Like throwing to the sideline was an issue for him in college is what the scout said. And it's borne out in the numbers. He actually had a lower completion percentage on sideline throws uh, from 15 to 20 yards. So it it's true. He doesn't have the arm talent of some of these other guys. Can you work around that? Yeah, you can. But the Bengals coming in last year, I, I wrote about this. The year before they drafted Burrow, they were number one in the league in sideline throws. Their scheme required a player who could make those throws. And I don't know that they adjusted well. I mean, Burrow got hurt and we don't have a full sample. But anyway, things like that, you need to adjust. Like so much of whether a quarterback is good or not is the situation and and the team around him. And and, and, and then we get into this, oh, you're saying quarterbacks don't matter. You know, no. What, what I am saying is, is that you can get in the way and you can impede the natural talent of a player, or you can put him in a situation where that natural talent can flourish. And the more situations 
good situations that quarterbacks land into, the more their upside will be realized, the more it looks smart to draft for that upside, for that raw talent. I just don't know that there are enough teams out there to do that reliably enough. If you think you have that team and the bills did, they thought they had that organization to, uh, to encourage and, and allow for Allen to flourish um, and the patients, obviously they, they went through a year and a half of pretty, pretty rough times. Um, um, then, then you can reap the rewards and I, and I think they deserve it. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I'm with that. Uh, yeah. I mean, part of it, the reason they they could have that patience was the fact that the defense kept them in a lot of games, right? I know he had these fourth quarter comebacks and, and other things that were going on, but if they don't have the defense keeping him in those games, it probably would have been tough, a lot tougher to to hang close with him going forward. Um, okay, I'm trying to look over at the NFC side of things to see if there's any sort of interesting storyline. I guess the Seahawks are are pretty interesting for the fact that they've had this first half, second half all over the place. Defense is playing well now. This sort of thing. What do, do, do you get? You got some Seahawks takes for me, either about Russ and that offense, um, or about the defense, which is now rejuvenated uh, on the defensive side of the ball. Does it matter? Yeah. So I mean, the Seahawks and the Cowboys; those were the two horrible defensive teams in the first three or four weeks of the year, when everyone is watching every snap and making broad proclamations about who and who can be fixed and who can, and who's just terrible and and are going to be terrible forever. Um, and it turned out that, you know, the Cowboys defense got a little better. And I think at the end there, they were, they were still bad, but there was a run where they were around average, but now the Seahawks are actually pretty good. Um, I, I think defense, I think we, I don't think it's wrong to say that teams have good defenses. I think that that is absolutely the case. And, and, and you can play good defense and you can rally up and make tackles when you shouldn't, you can have defensive linemen who make incredible plays and make it incredibly difficult for the offense to execute. Um, you know, obviously that's where those matchups really come into play. And I, I, I guess in the playoffs, as we saw last year, if you're not playing your best on both sides of the ball, you need someone like Patrick Mahomes to come back and just bring, put everyone on his back and, and, and make the team win. Um, and it doesn't look, now I think Wilson could be that guy. Like, I think he has that in him. Um, maybe not three straight, but you know, he has it in him to do that for a game. Do I think sneaky Pete is going to allow that to happen? I don't know. And, and that's, that's the big, that's the big problem with this second half of the season for the Seahawks is that I think they've lost a lot of confidence in Wilson. I think Wilson's lost a lot of confidence in himself. Is sneaky, sneaky Pete. Is that a thing that I missed? Or did you, are you, are you like tr- going Trump on here and coming up with your own nicknames? Sneaky Pete Carroll. You never heard that? Yeah, all, <laughs> no, all, 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 his, all his crap at USC? Yeah, no. Oh, it's sneaky, yeah. sneaky, sneaky Pete. Pete. Um, it sounded a little bit like what you were talking about, Russ. Are you saying he was overrated at some points uh, as being on the same plate as Patrick Mahomes or or not? Just clarify. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I don't think I don't think anyone's on Mahomes' plane. It was always, you know, the Mahomes tier. And then I heard a lot of 1B, like a 1B talk. Yeah. These are all kind of strong into me. I enjoyed, I, and this is what I enjoy about your, your, your overrated take is just like, like, there's no way to quantify it. Um, in my opinion, (laughs) that's actually reasonable. And, and like, and like, and so you're, you're either always right or or everyone could always argue with you. So I don't know. I think he's good. 
I think that they they did the Seahawks did the right thing the first half of the season when things started to slide a little bit. Um, they're now doing the wrong thing, but we're rewarded again. They're twelve and four, and they, you know, the narrative is going to be they saved the season by stopping, stopping the let, stopping Russ from eating too much. Um, but uh, I don't think it's going to work in the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, you are partially responsible for his his overratedness by. Um, by po- helping to popularize completion percentage over expectation, which without that, without that, I mean, Russ, let's, let's, let's look. I'm going to look on our friend uh, Ben Baldwin's site here. Where is Russ? I'm just scrolling to try to try to figure out where he is when I'm looking at EPA. For the folks play. that don't know, I'm just scrolling. I got to scroll. I got to scroll so far down. Uh, Seventeen? No, no, no. Fifteen. Fifteenth. Fifteenth. But he's number one in CPOE, which keeps him somehow, according to this 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 uh, this formula, this perfectly designed formula to keep him to keep him up here in the in the, the composite. For the, folks, for the folks that don't know CPOE, <laughs> the reason why I like it, the reason why I like it is that it takes a different approach to, to uh, quantifying value, and yet it predicts next season EPA per play almost as good or about as good as EPA per play. And I think that's interesting, and I think it should be a part of our open source toolkit. Now, if you have what PFF has, which is an army of people grading each play, who basically capture the same information, let's be honest, EPA per play, passing EPA per play, and passing grade are highly correlated. But it does capture some nuance, and 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 that nuance matters because if you look at uh, passing grade per play, it, it's more stable than anything year over year, and it's and it correlates with EPA per play value year over year. So I, I am it is it is not the case that when I argue for CPOE that I am denigrating passing grades or EPA per play. I'm just saying it's another way into the problem of understanding quarterback play from a slightly tangential angle. And it does just as good a job of predicting the future as other measures. Yeah, I mean, I've wondered a little bit. I mean, I, I think it is pretty good generally. I was also wondering whether or not, because you were looking at this a lot on a college basis, whether it's it's better in some way or there's there's more broad application of it in college um, adjusted for a conference and other things that, that you had done versus something like EPA per play in college, which is just driven a lot by, a lot more by... Uh, the defenses you're facing and, and whatnot, because you know accuracy maybe is a little bit stickier, I guess, than than some of those things. So I can see how on the on the college application it's a bit it's a bit higher. And I don't think it's bad for the NFL. I just think certain players like Russell Wilson will never have, well, not never, but he probably will never have a higher higher ranking in his EPA per play than he does in his in his CPOE, right? It's just not going to happen. He takes too many sacks and he's just a great throw of the ball. And he, in particular, he throws it to locations on the field and depths. Um, that are difficult are difficult throws to make but they aren't necessarily uh maximizing some some sort of productivity there so uh and I think that's part of like that's part of been the knock on him right is that he's not a quarterback that thrives with volume and and for whatever reason I mean Pete believes it and and and, and he knows him better than anyone so um, I don't totally discount that idea that there are quarterbacks who 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 are more productive when you give them more snaps. Um, but uh, um, I also don't completely believe it either. Makes sense. All right. So let, let me see. Uh, uh, we could give a broad question here. Is there any team in the playoffs right now that you're looking at and you think the the market i'm not saying necessarily the betting market but even even the public may be a little bit too low anyone that you're you're higher on than 
than the general public here. Maybe I'll give me. Maybe we'll finish it off this way. One one high team, one low team that you have for us. So I didn't ask you to prep this, so I'm going to hit you with. Yeah, one. no, I think the Buccaneers, um, by virtue of having a, a first round bye um, against Washington Football Team, are are our team that <laughs> disrespect. Uh, You're disrespecting the game, I think, just by making that combat. But go ahead. But I, I, I think I think the Buccaneers uh, actually have a strong defense. Um, whether or not it'll show up, who knows? But they so have you're not strong... buying the the football team defense here because I think largely that's I, mean, I was a little bit surprised when the the Bills I think the line for Bills it may have changed the Bills Colts line was six and a half and then the Bucks uh, football team line was seven and a half and I was like really there's only a point difference between those two I was shocked so so you're not buying I, I assume it's based on the fact this like front four pressure that they can get on Brady situation. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that they do have a great line, um, but no, Brady, Brady's seen that before. Uh, I mean, it, of, of all the quarterbacks in the league who can get rid of the ball quickly and be effective, like it's a perfect matchup for him. But no, I don't think that that's a problem for for the Buccaneers. And again, you have the experience of Brady. You have multiple weapons. You have to cover downfield. They have three legit receivers. Is, is Evans okay? I, I, haven't, I haven't kept up on the news. Uh, I don't think it's been fully, fully yeah. worked out, but it's not a long term. It's not like a ACL or something. So, yeah. 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 So, I mean, like maybe, maybe he takes a half off after they're up by 35 in the third quarter. So I think, uh, I think, uh, I think Buccaneers are, are my, are my upside team. Uh, and then you said one that I think is going to do worse. I, I don't know if the saints go very, I mean, I love Peyton. I love Sean Payton. He's my boy, but like, I don't know. Brady. I mean, excuse me, breeze doesn't give me a lot of, confidence and if they have to work in more more Taysom Hill I guess they could take it by surprise but all right put them aside Steelers I think are garbage okay yeah yeah uh so you're still is there any hope for the Steelers Steelers? that would would be my that would be my question because Steelers are one of these ones where it's like it's like when you bet on something based upon um, a power ranking system, and then you just lose every single week because your number never catches up to reality. Like, is there any chance that that's happened? Now we, that they've fallen so far, we just published an article saying that they they're, they're failing because they they have a bad running game. Well, I mean. It's possible. So, so there's so there's that. Uh, I I think um, I don't I don't think Ben is the guy he want. I mean, we I mean, all the obvious stuff. I I don't I don't think they have the horses. Like I just don't think they have the horses. I think they have a great coach who gets that team to play every week, um, and uh, they have a rematch now with a team that you know feels like you know they finally cracked the code. You know they're in the tournament for the first time in however long was it nineteen years. It's uh, I, I, I would not want to be the Steelers in this tournament. Uh, I just I just don't think they're built to make it. Yeah, I mean, well, we'll see what happens. Obviously, they have the COVID issues with with the Browns and then going into the next week. It looks like they'd be playing the Bills if they won. So that will be that was not that was that was ugly. The first, <laughs> the first time around and the, and the second half there. So we, we shall see. All right. So everyone out there. Bet your lives on the Bucks and uh, and bet and, and bet against old guys. You like you like one old guy. You like the oldest guy, and you hate the two the two other guys. I guess one guy has access to the TP12 magic. Um, okay, so Josh, everyone, thank you so much for joining me. Follow you on Twitter at Frisco Josh. Uh, 
writing for 538, do you still actually write there? You know, I, I brought up your, your author page. <laughs> I didn't see anything since like November. So I just want to check to make sure that's still accurate. What do you mean? I, I did just two days or two last week. Oh, there's something on there? Okay, I missed it. I missed my it then. Goodness gracious. Yeah, it's in my, it's my pinned tweet. It's a, it's the one on uh, defensive DBOE, defensive men in the box over, box over expected. And I kind of looked at which defensive coordinators uh, kind of went that way. And I think, I think it, it kind of dovetailed really well with the conversation that the uh, Twitterverse had at large about Brandon Staley um, the next week when Robert Mays uh, published his piece. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, a lot of the, the film guys are always going to want to hammer, you know, oversimplification, blah, blah, blah. But you could have heard that about like three pointers or something like that, right? It's like, oh, you can't just shoot more three pointers. Well, it's like, you know what you can do? You can know that it's beneficial to do so. Then you can bring in the smart coaches to figure out how to do it, right? You're not saying that you just like jack them up or do whatever, or just run motion every play or just play action Strategy every play. Strategy is different than tactics. Exactly, exactly. Well, anyway, thank you so much for joining me, everyone listening. Rate, review, the pod, and then I'll be at you again next week. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs>